that is what I see, that people die, which fills me with despair, that the end of life is unavoidable, that the grave, the all-powerful underworld, will spare no one, that no one is tall enough to block off the underworld, that no one is broad enough to cover over the underworld, the boundary that a man cannot cross at the final end of life. You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest, Lily. So we are listening to one of the two different texts about Gilgamesh's battle against the mythological creature Huwawa. This is the same figure called Humbaba in the more familiar Akkadian epic. So Gilgamesh is probably the most famous figure from Mesopotamian mythology. He was a legendary king of the city of Uruk, or Unug. To the extent that he was a real king, he probably would have ruled around 2700 BCE in the first half of the early dynastic period. In mythology, he is the son of the previous king of Unug, named Lugalbanda, and the goddess whose name is Ninsun, or Ninsumun. This part of the story comes right after Enkidu almost gets stuck in the underworld. The other version of the Gilgamesh versus Huwawa text has a seamless transition from the underworld text to this one. So there's a couple different stories about Gilgamesh, most of which are interesting in a kind of modern narrative sense, you know, beginning, middle, and end, the characters and motivations, etc. Gilgamesh in the underworld is... There's this ball game that Gilgamesh decides he really likes. So he wears out all of the young men of Unug playing this ball game. And he accidentally hits the ball so far that it falls down to the underworld. So he fetches Enkidu to go get it. And he says, Enkidu, you know, his best friend slash maybe lover. Yeah. Um, Although in the Sumerian stories, Enkidu is Gilgamesh's slave. So he sends Enkidu to the underworld and says, go get my ball. But while you're there, he tells him not to wear nice clothes or anoint himself with scented oil. If you do any of these things in this list, you know, the underworld will claim you forever and you won't be able to come back to the world of living. It's like the equivalent of like throwing the baseball into the grouchy neighbor's yard and then sending your yes. friend to go get it because you don't want to. <laughs> yes. And the neighbor's yard has all the rules of like the fairy realm. Like while you're there, don't eat their food. Oh, God. <laughs> exactly. But Enkidu does all these things. The text says, quote, he aroused an outcry and was detained in the netherworld. So Gilgamesh asks Enlil, the Sumerian god of kingship, for his help getting Enkidu out of the underworld. But Enlil refuses. So Gilgamesh goes to Enki, and Enki gets Utu to help, Utu being the sun god, who is in charge of the mountain regions where Huwaba lives. And Enki says to Utu, open a hole in the netherworld immediately, and then bring up his servant from the netherworld. So Enkidu comes back to the world of the living, and Gilgamesh asks him a bunch of questions about the fates of various people in the underworld. The rest of the text is phrased in the format, did you see the person who did X? Enkidu says yes. Gilgamesh asks how he fared, and Enkidu tells him. So for example, did you see him who had one son? I saw him. How does he fare? He weeps bitterly at the wooden peg which was driven into his wall. Did you see him who had five sons? Like a good scribe, he is indefatigable. He enters the palace easily. Did you see him who had seven sons? As a companion of the gods, he sits on a throne and listens to judgments. Did you see him who was eaten by a lion? He cries bitterly, Oh, my hands! Oh, my legs! Did you see my little stillborn children who never knew existence? They play at a table of gold and silver, laden with honey and ghee. Did you see him who was set on fire? I did not see him. His spirit is not about. His smoke went up to the sky. So Gilgamesh has had a close brush with death. His slave and best friend Enkidu almost died. He didn't actually die, or that it really mess up the rest of Gilgamesh's life. But anyway, this whole episode has served as a grim reminder to Gilgamesh of his own mortality and how little he's done so far to secure his legacy. So that other text ends. Gilgamesh's heart was smitten. His insides ravaged. The king began to search for life. Now the Lord once decided to set off for the mountain where the man lives. And the man the text is referring to is Huwawa, who is the kind of legendary guardian of the mountain. 
So this text starts with Enkidu speaking to Gilgamesh. Like I said, in the Sumerian tradition, Enkidu is Gilgamesh's slave and his closest confidant. So come on now, you heroic bearer of a scepter of wide-ranging power, noble glory of the gods, angry bull standing ready for a fight, young Lord Gilgamesh cherished in Unug. And Gilgamesh speaks. In Unug, people are dying and souls are full of distress. People are lost. This fills me with dismay. I lean out over the city wall. Bodies in the water make the river almost overflow. That is what I see, that people die thus, which fills me with despair, that the end of life is unavoidable, that the grave, the all-powerful underworld, will spare no one, that no one is tall enough to block off the underworld, that no one is broad enough to cover over the underworld, the boundary that a man cannot cross at the final end of life. By the life of my own mother, Ninsumun, and of my father, Holy Lugalbanda, and my personal god, Enki, Lord Nirumud. So Enkidu tells Gilgamesh that the mountains are the domain of the sun god Utu because the sun rises and sets at the far eastern and western extremes of the world. So Gilgamesh will have to ask the sun god's permission in order to attack Huawa. So the sun god Utu gives Gilgamesh seven guides and the text describing the first five guides is damaged. The sixth beats at the flanks of the mountains like a battering flood. The seventh flashes like lightning and no one can detect its power. These shine in the heavens, but they know the routes on earth. In the heavens they shine. On earth they know the way even to Arata. They know the destructive weather like the merchants. They know the mountain crannies like the pigeons. They will guide you to the place in the mountains where the boats have to be pulled from the water. So Gilgamesh conscripts an army of unmarried men from Unug. In Kulaba, he had the horn sounded. Citizens, you who have a wife, go to your wife. You who have children, go to your children. Warriors, whether experienced or inexperienced, who have no wife, who have no children, let such people join me at my side as the companions of Gilgamesh. The king left the city. Gilgamesh left Kulaba to follow the route to the mountains of Cedarfelling. He crossed the first mountain range, but his intuition did not lead him to find the cedars there. So the text repeats for the second through sixth ranges. In these first six ranges, his intuition does not lead him to find the cedars. But then, when he had crossed the seventh mountain range, there his intuition led him to find the cedars. Gilgamesh began to chop at the cedars. His slave Enkidu worked on the branches for him. His fellow citizens, who had come with him, stacked them in piles. Then, as one warrior got closer to the other, the aura of Huwawa sped towards them like a spear. So it's not clear what this aura is. It's apparently some kind of magical attack. It causes Gilgamesh to fall asleep. Later on in the Akkadian epic, on the island of Utnapishtim, sleep for Gilgamesh will be symbolic of death. You know, his weakness in being unable to avoid sleep will be symbolic of his mortality, ultimately. I think he's just he's just so dramatic about the fact that he has to die, which is like, okay, we right. get it, but that's a problem everybody has to deal with. Oftentimes you'll hear people talk about the epic of Gilgamesh and call it like the first work of literature, and it's not by a long shot, but I think it is kind of the first good work of literature, or at least the first kind of like literature that is fulfilling to a modern reader of, you know, literature. Yeah, I guess that's true. Like, it's a problem everybody has to deal with, which means it's still relevant today because we're still dealing with the fact that we have to die. Well, exactly. And especially in a story that is, you know, self-consciously about the kind of mythological legendary age before modern humanity. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that like a thousand years before that epic was written, we have this poem that deals so heavily with that same theme. So we will see how Gilgamesh's fight with Huawa turns out. But first, welcome to Sumer. We finally made it to the beginning of written history in the early 2000s BCE. We're going to spend most of our time this season in Sumer, or the Tigris-Euphrates alluvial plain south of modern Baghdad, most of which during this period speaks the Sumerian language, which we'll talk about today. 
So season three will cover the early dynastic period, or the period from 2900 to about 2350 BC. This begins after the end of the Jemdet Nasser period, and it'll end with the conquests of Sharum Ken of Agade, also known as Sargon of Akkad. So your high school world history textbook probably described this period as a series of autonomous city-states endlessly fighting each other, each city-state being a large city with tens of thousands of people surrounded by dependent agricultural villages. Each city would be dominated by a temple to the city god, and then Sargon of Akkad was the first person to unify them into a single kingdom. This is mostly true. So, during the early dynastic period, the number of settlements decreased, but the average area of these settlements increased. So, in other words, lots of people are moving out of villages into increasingly dense cities. This may have been accelerated by the aridification of the wetlands. In other words, the marshes that had drawn people here during the Ubayid period are beginning to dry out. But at the same time, when the wetland dries out, it creates irrigable farmland. In other words, because this is all flat land nearby rivers, it's easy to dig canals to irrigate new land. So the delta is protruding farther and farther into the Persian Gulf, which again creates new irrigable land. So both of these mean that these large city-states have more access to a larger area of farmland, which of course is great for them. We'll see a lot of new settlements in the new land created as the rivers deposit dirt into what used to be the Persian Gulf. Between the late Uruk and the early, early dynastic period, we see a high turnover rate for settlements. And this will start to stabilize around 2600 BCE. But just because people have been living in the same place for thousands of years at this point, you know, groves, gardens, temples, and kilns are still concentrated on turtlebacks, which used to be the only dry areas of land in what used to be marshland, but now they're just hills. We see intensified agriculture and intensified harvesting of reeds and other marsh products. And like I said, lots of new farmland opened up by aridification and irrigation projects. In a 2003 paper, Jennifer Pornell talks about evidence for multiple canals directing water, not to an irrigation system for fields, but instead into an area that had used to be wetland. So what we might see here is an attempt to rejuvenate what had been a wetland ecosystem before it dried up. So I mentioned city-states, which are probably the most well-known political feature of the early dynastic period. As the name would apply, these are states centered on cities. So in other words, you would have a large capital city with smaller centers around it that would also be part of the same state. Sometimes you would have multiple large cities within the same state. For example, we'll look at Lagash and Girsu, which are all things considered not that close to each other, but were part of the same city-state for the entire early dynastic period. At the top of the city-state governments, would be a local ruler and a bureaucracy of high-ranking political and or temple officials. Often the ruler's wife will have her own land, her own wealth, and sometimes her own household bureaucracy. We'll look at that especially during the pre-Sargonic period in Lagash, around 2400 BC. So we don't have any hard evidence for democratic assemblies of elders or citizens during the early dynastic period. This is an idea that comes mostly from the Sumerian poem Gilgamesh and Aga of Kish. We'll look at that at some point in the future. The leaders of these city-states have different titles. We have En, which means lord or eminent one. Lugal, which will later be translated as king. Ensi is a word for governor or viceroy. In other words, someone who rules on behalf of a higher leader, sometimes a human leader and sometimes a god. Nun means prince. And Sharum is the Akkadian word for king. Akkadian being the Semitic language spoken in the north. All of these have different meanings and reflect the variety of roles during the early dynastic period. They will become more standardized as time goes on. So at the center of every city and town, there would be a major temple with its own economic bureaucracy. These are the temples, public buildings, institutions that we've been following throughout the Ubayid and Uruk periods. By the early dynastic, they control huge amounts of farmland, largely granted to officials and skilled workers. They're responsible for large-scale storage and recording of grain and other goods, taking in agricultural goods as tribute, and then paying them out as salaries or elite gifts. They also would have supervised certain types of economic production, like pottery and metal and so on. Like I said, we've traced the development of these temples, 
You know, we see public buildings as early as Gerbekli Tepe. We see communal storehouses in pottery Neolithic North Mesopotamia, tripartite buildings in Ubaid Mesopotamia, the quote-unquote institutions of the Uruk period. And now we can formally call them Sumerian temples. So each of these temples would be conceived of as the household of a god, you know, the god being the protector deity of the city and its rulers. Sometimes cities were written with the names of their deity. In other words, the cuneiform sign for the god Nana was used to represent the city, Ur, of which Nana was the patron deity, the moon god. So when I say household, that means that they are economically similar to households of secular rich people and rulers, you know, kings, but much bigger with a more expensive bureaucracy. Obviously, the concept of a household is the central mode of organization for all these institutions, even if some of them are enormous. Most major cities have many temples, but some cities have two major temples. For example, as we've been talking about, Unug has the Ayana, which is the temple complex of the goddess Inanna, the patron goddess of Unug. But Unug also had the Kulaba, which was the temple complex of the heaven god An. We'll also spend a lot of time this season in Kish, and Kish had a temple to Ishtar, or Inanna, in the eastern half of the city, and a temple to the local god Zababa in the west. So I mentioned that the high school history textbook summary is mostly true. And one of the major things often left out of an introductory survey to the early dynastic period is the concept of a city league, which we talked about in the Jemdet Nasser period episode. So in other words, a city league would be a political entity encompassing several city-states. We see possible evidence of this as early as around 3000 BCE. We talked about the city seals. This league may have been called Ki Engi or Kengir. We see more evidence from Ur in the 2700s BCE, as well as the 2500s at Shurpak and Abu Salabik. The administrative center of this league changes, the member cities change, and we may be looking at several different city leagues and not the same one over time. But the idea of a city league will persist throughout the early dynastic period until, of course, Sargon of Akkad conquers most of Mesopotamia and incorporates it into a single kingdom, which we'll look at after season three. So powerful kings were one of the new political developments during the early dynastic period. So increasingly, we will see states centered on a particular household, you know, a royal household and a palace across generations. And they seem to be a new political base outside the traditional temple hierarchy. During the Uruk period, we looked at the hierarchy of temple job titles in the Lutu A list. The first title in that list was Namesh Da. In art from the Uruk period, we see a bearded man taller than everyone else on the Warka vase from the Jemdet Nasser period. We have the cuneiform sign N above his head. If that's used, as it is later, to represent the Sumerian word N, which means Lord, that might indicate that this was a picture of the N of the temple hierarchy. In administrative texts from the Jemdet Nasser period, we see that the N is apparently the de facto leader of the institutions producing those administrative texts. So obviously much more on that later. The title Namash Da is still used during the early dynastic period. We'll look at archaic Ur during the 2700s BCE. But over time, we see more and more references to a Lugal, Lu is Sumerian for men, and Gal means great, so Lugal literally meaning great man. Even in the archaic texts at Ur, we see a reference to a Lugal of Lagash. So the word for palace in Sumerian is Egal, or great house. We see that in some northern cities like Kish, Mari, and Ebla, and a few southern ones, for example at Eridu, this is where we start to see massive administrative complexes unrelated to the city gods, often spatially separated from them. These might be royal palaces, as they will be later. And just like a temple is the household of a god, comprising its officials and artisans and slaves and so on, the palace is the household of the king and his royal family, as well as all of those other officials and employees. Even more so than the temple, this is a clear outgrowth of chiefly households. The early dynastic period will see a succession of increasingly powerful kings. You know, we have the legends of Enmerkar, Lugalbanda, and Gilgamesh, which are referenced in the earliest literature we know. These stories are inherently tied up in narratives of foreign war and conquest, so, you know, we'll see Ayanatum of Lagash claim to conquer much of Mesopotamia and chunks of Iran. 
We'll see N. Shakushana conquer much of the Alluvium. Lugal Zagesi will claim to conquer all of Sumer in the early to mid-2300s BCE. And, of course, Sargon of Akkad, as I mentioned, will conquer pretty much the whole thing. So I mentioned earlier that we can be sure they're writing in Sumerian at this point, and that is because of advancements made in writing cuneiform during the early dynastic. So the Uruk IV period, around 3200 BCE, was the first stage of writing. The Uruk III period, or the Jemdat Nasser period, represented an advancement in cuneiform writing. We'll see the next stage of writing at Archaic Ur, again during the 2700s BCE. This is when we have the first Sumerian names written phonetically. This is why I mentioned in the Sumerian question episodes that it's possible but unlikely that Sumerians only showed up around 2900 BC during the end of the population upheaval following the collapse of the Uruk period. The majority opinion is that the Alluvium mostly spoke Sumerian during the Uruk period, but either way, they're definitely here now. The Uruk lexical tradition will continue. In other words, scribe schools will keep copying the same texts from the late Uruk, even if they don't understand a lot of it. I mentioned the tribute list, which even by the 2500s BCE, is too obsolete for scribes to understand, but they do keep copying it down for some reason. They'll also add, of course, new lexical lists. And I mentioned literature. The first literature as such from Mesopotamia shows up during the 2500s BCE. So in texts from Shurupak and Abu Salabik, we see hymns, the first wisdom literature, that's the instructions of Shurupak, lists of gods, one of which includes Gilgamesh as a god, and the first mythological narratives, one of which tells the story of the marriage of Lugalbanda and Ninsumun, who are the parents of Gilgamesh. So, the trade in precious metals dates back to the Ubaid period, if not longer. Gold and silver were used for art and jewelry, as were copper and lapis lazuli and so on. But the Ubaid and the Uruk period were still non-monetary economies, so it's unclear exactly how exchange worked, especially in the periphery. But in the cities, temples collected raw materials as tribute, they collected grain from farmers, they stored and measured it, and distributed it to workers. The value of labor was measured in amounts of grain, literally because they had to feed their manual laborers or they would starve to death, but also more specialized workers, and especially temple officials and aristocrats and so on, would get huge payouts of grain to dispense with as they pleased. It's unclear if there was a way to calculate how many sheep were equal to a cow, but they probably didn't need to, because there probably weren't transactions between supposedly equal amounts of commodities. In other words, all exchange outside of sharing with your friends and family and neighbors and so on. On the political, you know, macro-social level, there was no such thing as an equal exchange of commodities. You, know, you owed a certain amount to the temple, whether that's in grain or milk fat or whatever, and you knew what to expect from them, and nobody ever pretended that those exchanges were equal. It's unclear if these prehistoric periods had a concept of debt, but based on later periods, it's possible that farmers were able to obtain products in exchange for part of their harvest. And as we talked about in episode four, cattle rentals for plows would be one of many opportunities for debt. During the early dynastic period, the specter of debt slavery will become much larger and much more of a prescient threat as more and more free farmers fall into debt to larger landowners as a result of bad harvests. One of the innovations during the early dynastic period is using a small amount of silver to represent a large amount of grain, although value is still primarily measured and calculated in grain, because that's what the temples and palaces are taking in as tribute. So by the end of the early dynastic period, we are looking at a monetary economy. Texts from Ebla in the 2300s BCE talk about goods purchased with specific amounts of silver. We'll see both government officials and soldiers paid in silver, and we'll see tax and tribute collected partially in silver. But the vast majority of transactions are still paid in kind, that is, in exchange of actual goods, mostly barley, instead of silver. The vast majority of population is involved in agriculture in some way, and they're paid mostly in barley. Now, whether they work for the temple or palace and are paid their salary in barley, or whether they're sharecroppers working on the temple or palace lands, who are paid a portion of the harvest that they end up collecting once a year. So in a lot of cases, you end up with people who are able to pay for goods, but only in amounts of barley, because they're not really carrying around amounts of silver with them. So most transactions at this period are still like bar tabs. In other words, as a peasant, you need something now. 
but you have no money now. You only have a promise of barley once you harvest it. So very few exchanges are paid in full at the time of purchase. The vast majority of exchanges going on during the early dynastic period are part of an ongoing system of exchange embedded into the social network. So you pay tax and tribute to the government, you give offerings to the temple, you are paid a salary or a wage by the institution that employs you. So instead of a monetary economy where money changes hands based on the whims of people who own money, the vast majority of exchange is going on as a kind of regularized system of employment and tribute to more powerful powers and institutions and so on. So in general, the early dynastic period is in the process of shifting to a monetary economy. And of course, we're 2,000 years away from minted coins as such. The thing about silver is it's like grain, only better. You know, grain has a long shelf life in the right conditions, but silver never rots. Grain is valuable because it's calorically dense. Silver is much denser and much more valuable. Grain is infinitely divisible. Silver is a pain to slice up, but people did it. Yeah, you'd put a certain amount of silver on the scale, and if it wasn't enough, you would slice off a little sliver of silver and repeat until you had enough silver on the measuring scale. Over time, temples will build up massive stores of silver and trade other goods to acquire silver, even at a loss. The main point is not profit as such, but having the biggest hoard of bullion at your disposal. So they are much more like Fort Knox than like the New York Stock Exchange. The beginning of the early dynastic period is a low point of international engagement. In the wake of the Uruk collapse, interregional trade networks started to bypass Sumer. For example, we see a tradition of seals shared between the Zagros foothills in Iran and northern Mesopotamia, but not Sumer. But starting around 2600 BCE, Sumerian cities started to interact more intensively with the outside world. They imported more gold, silver, lapis lazuli, and carnelian, and other luxury goods. They were involved in more long-distance military expeditions. This accompanied a growth in social complexity and wealth inequality. By the time we get to the Royal Cemetery at Ur, which dates from the 2500 BCE or so, here we see absurd amounts of gold and lapis lazuli worked into lavish jewelry and so on, as well as several tombs with dozens of human sacrifices, which is about as unequal as society can get. When one important person dies, you get to sacrifice 70 regular people. In terms of their international trading partners, Maluha was their word for the Indus Valley or the Harappan civilization, which they traded with via the Persian Gulf. It was their major source of gold, lapis lazuli, and carnelian which was mined in Afghanistan, transported south to the Indian Ocean coast, and then sailed to Sumer. Magan was their name for modern Oman. This was a major source of copper, and they traded with Sumer via Dilmun, which is their name for modern Bahrain and the nearby coast of Saudi Arabia. This was a maritime trade entrepot. It connected Melucha and Magan with Sumer and the rest of Mesopotamia. So the center of the Sumerian world would have been the Mesopotamian alluvial plain. To the north of that would have been a band of dry grassland, which is good for mobile herding, as long as you can bring your herds from water source to water source, but there's not enough rain for dry farming and not enough flat land near the rivers to irrigate enough land to grow food for a city, which is why Sumerian urban society can't spread that far north. So the city of Mari in East Syria is built in the middle of this dry zone around 2900 BCE. So the people who built it also dug over 100 kilometers of canals to connect it to the Khabar and the Euphrates rivers. By around 2400 BCE, Mari would be the most powerful city in Syria. Going a little bit farther north to this dry plain area and farther north of that, the dry farming region where it does rain enough to farm without irrigation. For the first 500 years after the end of the Uruk period, we see only small rural villages and small-scale agriculture, so about 3100 to 2600 BCE. But starting in the 2600s, we see urban culture grow up quickly. So between about 2600 and 2400, we will see the growth of Nagar, which is a kingdom centered on the city of Telbrak in northeastern Syria, as well as Ebla in northwestern Syria. These are both centers of their own kingdoms, and both kingdoms paid tribute to Mari, most of which we know because we have lots of text from Ebla in the 2300s BCE. We'll get to that at the end of the season. But in general, all of Mesopotamia, between the Anatolian Mountains and the Persian Gulf, the area between the Tigris and Euphrates, is one single zone of cultural, political, and economic interaction. 
Traditionally, the early dynastic period is divided into three periods, early dynastic one, two, and three. These are based on excavations in the 1930s in the Diala Valley at the northeastern edge of the Sumerian world. The division between early dynastic one and two is based on sculpture design, not material culture. Most academics today recognize early dynastic one and two as basically the same period for which we have very little written evidence, so it's not easy to draw political distinctions or historical distinctions as such. Especially in southern cities like at Ur, there is no clear distinction between early dynastic one and two. And in general, the vast majority of written records come from early dynastic three, and then Early Dynastic Three is often divided into 3A and 3B. So for my purposes, I want to divide the Early Dynastic into three parts. Part one is the Archaic Period. Formally, Archaic only refers to the writing at Ur, but I think it fits here for the entire period, about 2900 to 2600, or Early Dynastic One and Two. As I mentioned, this is when we have the first certainly Sumerian writing at Ur, and during this period, the Kingdom of Kish controls much of the north. So the second of three periods, that I want to divide the early dynastic into is the Fara period. So about 2600 to 2500 or 2450-ish. This is often called the early dynastic 3A period. Fara is the modern site name of Shuvarpak, and the period is named after the texts produced there. Among these texts, as I mentioned, is the first literature, and around 2500 and possibly into the 2400s, we see the royal tombs at Ur. And the third of three periods is the pre-Sargonic period. So lasting from the early 2400s to about 2350, this is often called the Early Dynastic 3B period. Here is when we have our first detailed records from the Kingdom of Lagash in the city of Girsu. This period gives us a much better look at political history in places like Lagash, Uma, Ur, and Unug. So just to sum up, Archaic period, 2900 to 2600, Thara period, 2600 to 2500, and Pre-Sargonic period, 2500 to 2350. So thinking about identity, as with earlier periods, Primarily, people probably identified themselves by their family. Traditional kinship groups are still the indivisible unit of social organization in many places. Each family would have its own personal god or gods. The gods were conceived to exist in a class system based on, obviously, the human class system. So generally, people were not considered eligible to pray to the god of the city itself. So your family's low-ranking personal god would be your intermediary between you and your family and the major gods, you know, your Inanas and Enlils and Enkis and so on. And these personal gods would also mark your identity as a member of a specific lineage. But increasingly, we will see in the city-states and construction of a city-wide social identity focused on these city gods. The myths of these patron gods of cities probably incorporated local folklore, by which I mean even if the mythological stories that come to us from these temples were written with a clear ideological end in mind, that doesn't mean that they were made up out of whole cloth by these scribes. They were probably based on pre-existing stories and so on. We also see a new way of identifying yourself by relation to an important person in society. So you might introduce yourself as X, man of Y. In other words, you, X, are politically or economically dependent on a benefactor, Y. Either he's a temple official with a large plot of land and you are one of the farmers who works on that land. So introducing yourself to strangers, you say, hey, you probably don't know me, but you do know this official who works at the temple and has all this land. I work for him. So you know, increasingly, this is a way for people to mark their identity via a relationship to a particular rich and important person. So earlier, I mentioned language. The word Sumerian refers primarily to a language, which is known only from cuneiform writing. So we know this language. We know its rules of grammar and vocabulary and so on. But this language is not the same as an ethnic group. So when you speak of the Sumerians, that's kind of shorthand for everyone living in the alluvium within the reach of the quote-unquote Sumerian society. That doesn't mean that their society is 100% ethnically Sumerian, whatever that would mean. We will see evidence for different dialects within Sumerian, and of course we will see people with Semitic names, people with Elamite names, and so on. Sumerian is a language isolate, which means it's not related to any other known language. On the internet, you will find many, many, many people claiming that Sumerian is related to their favorite ethno-national group in Eurasia. It's probably related to a bunch of languages that went extinct thousands of years ago. 
And this shouldn't surprise us. You know, this isn't unusual at all. The vast majority of languages that ever existed in history are now extinct. People move to a larger, more complex society and abandon their language that only 100 people in the world spoke for, you know, Chinese or Arabic or whatever. The same thing was probably true with Sumerian and later Akkadian and so on, Aramean. That is just how language works in large, complex societies. A lot of times in pop history, you know, on the internet or whatever, you'll see someone claim that, quote unquote, Sumerians invented whatever. You know, this usually refers to advancements made during the fourth millennium, you know, during the Uruk period, in other words. Telbrak in Syria could be described as the first city-state, and they probably didn't speak Sumerian. The early to middle Uruk period sees the first institutionalized long-distance trade, which was probably only Sumerian on one end of that change, and maybe neither end. And during the late Uruk, we see the first writing and complex bureaucracies, which do take place in the Alluvium, and were likely done by lots of people who spoke Sumerian. And it bears mentioning that the Sumerians did not do it all by themselves, you know, regardless of what language was most common in the Alluvium during the Uruk period. You know, either way, Calling people Sumerians is a convenient shorthand for people who lived in a society in which the scribal elite wrote in Sumerian. So Sumer is actually an Akkadian name for the Alluvium. In Akkadian, it was pronounced Shumer. The Sumerians had a couple names for Sumer, and we're not clear exactly which context they were used in. The land of Sumer was called Kalam. For example, the temple of Inanna slash Ishtar in Kish was called Hursang Kalama, or Mountain of the Land of Sumer. The Sumerians also called their homeland Ki and Gi, which they might have pronounced Kengir. This is Sumerian for land of noble lords. So ki is land, en is lord, and gi means noble or civilized. The Sumerian word for the Sumerian language was emengir, or native language, and they called themselves the Sangiga, or the black-headed people. And this does not appear to have been exclusive to ethnic Sumerians, whatever that means again, but just the people of the world, because probably pretty much everyone would have had black hair. So in later sources, the word ki and gi was translated into Akkadian as mat shumerim, or the Sumerian land. So Sumer is an Akkadian name, not a Sumerian name. So I mentioned Akkadian, which is a Semitic language. We know that it was spoken in northern Mesopotamia during the early dynastic. And of course, the early dynastic will end with the conquests of Sargon of Akkad. This is the beginning of the old Akkadian period, also known as the Akkadian dynasty. So you may have guessed that Sargon's first language was Akkadian and not Sumerian. For the next 2,000 years after that, on and off, cuneiform is most often used to write Akkadian, including its dialects, Assyrian and Babylonian. Akkadian cuneiform reaches as far as Egypt, Western Anatolia, and Iran. And of course, the Semitic language family is distantly related to Egyptian, which is a member of the Afroasiatic family. The Semitic family includes Arabic, Hebrew, Phoenician, and Amharic in Ethiopia, as well as Aramaean, which is the language of the Book of Daniel in the Bible, as well as the probable language that Jesus spoke. Akkadian is an East Semitic language, so the northern cities of Kish, Mari, and Ebla all wrote in related languages. These are the only known East Semitic languages, and I'll be calling them all Akkadian, even if technically they might have been different languages. So Semitic names show up in some of our earliest records. As soon as names are written phonetically in Sumerian texts, a good percentage of those names are in an East Semitic language. That percentage of Semitic names is almost zero at Ur in the 2700s, but at Shurpak around 2600 BCE, we see a higher percentage and a still higher percentage at Abu Salabik, farther to the north, or at 2,500, which indicates that Semitic-speaking people were part of quote-unquote Sumerian society from the very beginning. Sargon did not lead an army of complete cultural aliens into Sumer. They were there from the very beginning. Throughout the early dynastic, we see no sign of ethnic tension as such. Like I mentioned, the term black-headed people referred equally to both. There are no terms for Sumerian-speaking person or Akkadian-speaking person. So as much as it has melted 20th century academics' brains to consider a society not riven by racial conflict, they did not seem to have any kind of ethnic conflict. Even during Sargon's dynasty, the term Akkadian referred to members of Sargon's new royal elite, the new aristocracy he created, which was centered at his new capital of Agade or Akkad. So this was a political distinction, not an ethnic or quote-unquote national one. Judging by names, 
the new Akkadian aristocracy included both Sumerians and Semitic speakers. So, you know, even Sargon didn't use Akkadian as an ethnic descriptor, even though he did have to learn Sumerian as a second language. His daughter, Enheduanna, is famous for writing poetry in Sumerian, which probably would have been her second language. And there would have been a fair number of other languages also spoken in Mesopotamia during the early dynastic. Amorite was another Semitic language, possibly in the Northwest Semitic family, like Hebrew and Ugaritic and Phoenician and so on. Sumerians called the Amorites Martu, which was their word for West. And they mostly migrated into Mesopotamia as we know it at the end of the third millennium. So they're not important yet. I mentioned Elamite. So starting around 2400 BCE, we have the first written inscriptions in Iran in the Elamite language. This is another language isolate. It may or may not be related to the language represented by the Proto-Elamite writing system, if indeed Proto-Elamite represented a language at all. Hurrian was spoken in southeastern Anatolia and the upper Tigris. Sumerians called this northern region Shubor, and the Akkadian version of that name is Subartu. This place name might appear as early as 2700 BCE at Kish, which we'll look at in episode 3 of the season. The prisoner plaque refers to a place called Kur Shubur, which might mean mountain of Assyria. A series of Sumerian words we have related to metalworking are from Hurrian. For example, the Sumerian Tibira for smith is from the Hurrian word Tabiri for he who has cast. And in the Diyala Valley in the north and northeast of Sumer, we have lots of names that are neither Sumerian nor Semitic, and they follow the banana phonetic pattern. In other words, three syllables with the second and third syllable being the same. So names like Zababa, Kubaba, Gulili, Urnana, and so on. This is not necessarily proof of a different language, but it is a common pattern that is unexplained by either Sumerian or Semitic languages. It could also be a pattern of nicknames or abbreviation. And these were almost certainly not the extent of languages spoken during the 2000s. One text refers to many-tongued Hamazi. I believe that's Enmerkar and Ensukeshdana. It's unclear what language the Gutians and Lulubi spoke, both of which lived far to the north and northeast. And we have no idea about the language of the Indus Valley civilization, among others. And we'll finish up today by looking at the Sumerian king list. So Gianni Marchese starts his 2010 article on the Sumerian king list by saying, quote, Of course, there is no such thing as a Sumerian king list, end quote. Instead, it is part literary text and part historical tradition. In Mesopotamia, it was known by the first word in this text, which is Nam Lugal, or kingship. This text first appeared during the 21st century BC, during the third dynasty of Ur, whose kings were trying to reassemble Sargon's empire. Sargon was not the first king of a kingdom comprising multiple cities, but he did have the biggest kingdom up to that point. So in other words, in order to legitimize the political position that they had already seized, they had to manufacture a historical tradition of unified kingship, this kind of ancient and noble tradition of a unified hegemony over all of Mesopotamia, instead of what really happened, which was a bunch of regional powers, and then one big empire that ruled the entire area once, which is why in the Sumerian king list we see a single unified hegemony over all of Mesopotamia passed from city to city over time. It was also useful for future kings for the same reason. We have later copies from the second millennium BC. So the text from Ur began with Kish, quote, When kingship came down from heaven, the city of Kish was sovereign. In Kish, Yushur exercised kingship for 2,160 years, end quote. Later, compilers might have felt uncomfortable with this, One reason, among many, is that Kish was part of the northern culture to which Sargon belonged. And of course, once Sargon became king, Kish would be one of his major power bases. The text at Ebla might suggest that he put his son on the throne of Kish, while he himself was sitting on the higher throne of Akkad, or Agadeh. This is a familiar practice. We can see that kings of Unug often put their sons on the less prestigious throne of Ur. But if that's the case with Sargon, then that means that Sargon's son married the legitimate daughter of the king of Ebla less than a year before Ebla itself was destroyed. More on that later, obviously. So, according to Marchese, these compilers attached a pre-existing separate tradition of kings before the flood. In other words, they put the beginning of kingship 
in the proper Sumerian city of Eridu, near Ur. As we've talked about, this is among the oldest Ubaid sites near Ur, far away from the north. This tradition of antediluvian kings also includes Shurupak, which was a major administrative center of the early dynastic city league and or the kingdom of Kish. Look at that. These early kings all have reigns in the tens of thousands of years. So in this post-Diluvian dynasty at Kish, the first king is named Gushur, which means tree trunk. His successors all reign in the high hundreds of years. The second king is Kulasina Bel, which is Akkadian for he rules over all of them, and so on. So some of these early kings of Kish have names of animals, like dog, lamb, scorpion, and buck, son of gazelle. So this would make more sense if parts of the Sumerian king list had an origin in folklore. After a lot of kings, it says, quote, Kish was defeated and the kingship was taken to Aana, which of course is the temple complex of Inanna in Unug. Here's a long quote from the SKL on the kings of Unug. In Aana, Meshki Angasher, the son of Utu, became lord and king. He ruled for 324 years. Meshki Angasher entered the sea and disappeared. Enmerkar, the son of Meshki Angasher, the king of Unug, under whom Unug was built, became king. He ruled for 420 years. Lugalbanda, the shepherd, ruled for 1,200 years. Dumuzid, the fisherman whose city was Kuwara, ruled for 100 years. He captured Enme Baragesi, single-handed. Gilgamesh, whose father was a phantom, the lord of Kulaba, ruled for 126 years. Ur-Nungal, the son of Gilgamesh, ruled for 30 years, and so on. So the son of Utu, who goes into the sea and disappears, is probably a reference to a lost myth that makes Enmerkar the grandson of the sun god, when we read these texts, I might have called him the son of Utu because the text calls him son of Utu. My bad. The Enmerkar myths are fundamentally about Enmerkar building the Aeana. Also worth noting, both Lugulbanda and Gilgamesh, who of course are main characters of their own epics, each get one line. And between them is Dumuzi or Dumuzid. This is the same name as Anana's lover god. It may or may not represent the same mythological figure. But the fact that it says Gilgamesh's father was a phantom might indicate that Gilgamesh is not Lugalbanda's son here, as he is in later stories. Anyway, after Unug, the kingship goes to Ur, then Awan, which is an Iranian dynasty, then back to Kish. It's possible that there was an original version where Kish ruled uninterrupted by other dynasties. Some kings have short biographical notes attached. For example, a shepherd, a fisherman, a smith, a fuller, a boatman, a leather worker, a low-ranking priest, etc. Marchese says, quote, Even a female tavern keeper seems to have exercised kingship and not for a short time, end quote. So Kubaba, or Kugbao, gets 100 years in the list. The Sumerian king list also mentions historical kings of Ur, but gets the order wrong. So the fifth king of Ur that we have records for is succeeded by his son, number two, who is succeeded by his son, number nine. The king list also mentions Enshakushana of Unug, who sacked Kish around 2400 BCE. The text also lists kings of Mari, but the names of these kings of Mari in the list don't overlap at all with the historical kings from this period, which again might indicate that these names come from some other historical tradition other than the kings who actually ruled during the early dynastic period. So the Sumerian king list probably incorporates elements from literature and historical traditions, you know, probably some myths and legends, most of which were probably transmitted orally. And it has some notable omissions. So Lagash was the biggest and most powerful city in Sumer around 2400 BCE. The text does not mention any kings of Lagash whatsoever. This probably reflects a much later grudge. Of the dozens of kings before Sargon in the Sumerian king list, only seven are mentioned in the historical record. There's Enme Barigesi, or Me Parasi of Kish. There's Gilgamesh of Unug. There's three kings of Ur, Mesanepada, Meskiangnuna, and Elulu, or Elili. There's Enshakushana of Unug, and then Lugalzagesi, who started his career in Uma and later became king of Unug, and who was the last major king before Sargon. The vast majority of king names before Sargon are not attested in historical texts, and they don't even show up as personal names during the early dynastic period. Some of them, like Gushur or Tree Trunk, 
refer to plants or animals, all of which indicates that this is probably much more based in legend and oral tradition than it is in actual recorded history. So before we return to the story of Gilgamesh and Tuwawa, we're going to talk about the evidence for a historical Gilgamesh who would have ruled the city-state of Unug in the first half of the early dynastic period, around 2700 BCE or so. So, obviously, Gilgamesh is best known from the Epic of Gilgamesh. The version we're most familiar with was the final version written near the end of the Late Bronze Age, so sometime between 1300 and 1000 BCE. It was written down by a scribe named Sin Leki Unini, which is Akkadian for Nana accepts my prayer. Nana, of course, being the patron god of the city of Ur. It's not clear how much of the story that we have results from this scribe's creative decisions, or whether he was just the last one to write down a pre-existing story. We do have fragments of the story appearing in the early 1000s BCE, the second millennium BCE, but it's not clear if these fragments come from the unified whole that is familiar to us today. In Sumerian literature, Gilgamesh was originally an En of Kulaba, in other words, the lord of the temple district of the god An. Originally, he was not titled Lugal, or king, and this might suggest that this tradition comes from a time when Kulaba was considered separate from the Aana temple complex, also in Unug. So to speak of the kingdom that Gilgamesh may have ruled, on and off throughout the early dynastic period, Ur and Unug were part of the same political unit. We'll talk more later on exactly what this means. The two cities might have been equal partners in a city league, or Ur may have been a dependency of the kingdom of Unug. In other words, the king of Unug may have, at some points, ruled over the city of Ur. Either way, we have lots and lots of records from Ur, which may or may not shed light on Unug. There's a small chance that some of these records from Archaic Ur date from the actual reign of the historical king Gilgamesh, if there was such a king, which there probably was. Unfortunately, we have no documents from Archaic Unug. So Gilgamesh appears in later epics alongside Aga of Kish. King Enme Baragesi of Kish, father of Aga of Kish, is the oldest king independently documented. He also shows up in the Sumerian king list. So this leads to a common claim that the Unug cycle, you know, Enmerkar, Lugalbanda, and Gilgamesh, was based on historical events and would have taken place around this period, the 2700s-ish. But we have an obvious problem, which is that we have no inscriptions identifying kings like Enmerkar or Gilgamesh, and we also don't have the remains of any monumental buildings in Unug from this period. We do know that early dynastic Unug was huge. It was 400 hectares, or 800 American football fields. It is still the biggest city in Sumer, possibly the biggest city in the world at the time, but it's nowhere near as important as it used to be relative to other cities in Sumer. The Aana, or the Temple District of Inanna, is much smaller than it was during the late Uruk period, partially as a result of the reorganizations during the Jemdatnasser period. Unuk will remain a major Sumerian city throughout the early dynastic, but after that it will be more important in legend than in real-life politics. And we'll see soon that Gilgamesh will function as a kind of legendary king for all of Sumer, not just in Unug. Unug and Ur are pretty close to each other, all things considered, and it's possible that the dynasty under which these epic poems were written was established by the brother of a king of Unug around 2100 BC. We'll talk about that much, much, much later. So I mentioned earlier that we don't have the monumental buildings from archaic Unug. So the conventional explanation is that Sargon of Akkad and his grandson Naram-Sin completely leveled the city center during various rebellions by Sumerian coalitions against the Akkadian dynasty. Also, the dynasty in Ur I mentioned earlier, the third dynasty of Ur, or the Ur III dynasty, which came to power around 2100 BCE, might have destroyed the earlier center at the Aana in order to build their own palace. So although we have remains of the ziggurat from Ur during the Archaic period, again 2900 to 2600 BC, we barely have any kind of useful evidence from the Archaic period for piecing together the political history of Unug during this period, which is a crying shame. So I mentioned the goddess Inanna. She is, of course, the patron goddess of Unug. Her home is the Aana temple complex. She was worshipped as Venus, in other words, the morning and evening star. Also, she shares many aspects with the Roman goddess Venus, namesake of the planet. Most saliently, 
being the goddess of sexuality and war. So Inanna may or may not be associated with the city league that we've been talking about, which might have been based at Ur. As we've seen in the Unug cycle, Inanna is literally married to King Enmerkar. This probably reflects the sacred marriage or hierogamy that would have probably taken place between a king and a priestess of Inanna. I also mentioned On, the heaven god, whose home is the Kulaba temple complex, also in Unug. He is generally more distant in mythology. He doesn't really do that much, but he's always there being mentioned. So to speak of the territory that Gilgamesh may or may not have ruled. So in a 2009 article by Douglas Frayne, he talks about the literary text, the Zami Hymnic Collection, which is a very early collection of hymns to various temples. This dates from about 2500 BCE, and it might delineate the territory of archaic Unug. In other words, the places mentioned in this hymnic collection might be the cities ruled by Unug during the archaic period. This text is apparently unique to Abu Salabik in the northern Alluvium, and it didn't enter the general scribal canon, unlike the Kesh Temple Hymn and the instructions of Shurupak, which were also texts found at Abu Salabik that were copied later on. The first hymn in the collection deals with Nippur. This is the cultic center of Sumer, in other words, the religious capital in a sense. During the early dynastic period, Nippur acted as the impartial referee in struggles between different city-states. So the fact that it shows up first here might attest to an archaic relationship between Unug and Nippur, if indeed this is a list of places ruled by Unug. The second hymn in the collection is to the Aana complex. This is no surprise. Frayn interprets this as evidence of Unug's hegemony. The second to last is Kulaba, in other words, on Stemple Complex. In this text, Kulaba is connected to, quote, the taking hold of the crown, end quote. I mentioned earlier that Gilgamesh was originally an N of Kulaba, not a king of Unug as such. And like I said, this text might reference Gilgamesh. It's unclear. So the fact that Ayana is the second in this collection and that Kulaba is the second to last might be a reference to Unug's hegemony. The last hymn in the collection is dedicated to the goddess Ama Lisi, who is also known from text from Shurupak during the 2500s-ish. In a god list from Abu Salabik, Ama Lisi is listed right after Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, of course, being counted as a god in this list of gods. Ama Lisi was the patron deity of Gishgi, probably somewhere near Uma. Her shrine is called Gigi, or Canebreak. I mentioned back in episode one that the Sumerian word Gi is the source of English words like cane and canal via Akkadian, Greek, and Latin. Amalisi's husband is named Nin Sikila. In a god list from Adab, Lisi is listed as another name for the goddess Ninhursung, along with Dingirmach and Ninmug. Part of Douglas Frayne's reason for assuming that this text was a list of the cities under Unug's control is that Enheduanna, the famous daughter of Sargon of Akkad, whom he installed as the head priestess at the temple to the moon god Nana in Ur, she created texts that included hymns from every temple under her father's control, under Sargon's control. These texts would be written to delineate and celebrate his empire. So it's possible that these early dynastic hymns have the same purpose for the kingdom of Unug. Zami is the Sumerian word for praise. And each of these hymns ends with a line, praise to ex-god. In the Zami hymnic collection, one sequence of signs might say Gishbil, which is similar to the signs Gishbil and the syllables Gi-mes, which is a later spelling of Gilgamesh. So this text might reference him by name, but the text is broken off there. So speaking about Gilgamesh's name, in a previous episode, I said that Gilgamesh's name in Sumerian was Bilgames. This is the mainstream opinion that his name in Sumerian was Bilgames and his name in Akkadian was Gilgamesh. In a 2015 paper by Gianni Mirkezi, he finds an archaic tablet from Ur that says, Pabilgames is the chosen one of Utu. This might not be a reference to the Gilgamesh, but Utu has a lot to do with the literary character of Gilgamesh, as we'll see him later. And Pabilga, the first element in that name, Pabilgames, is Sumerian for progenitor, or ancestor. So Marchesi, in a 2004 article, translates Pabilgames as the progenitor is as fruitful as a mess tree. He also mentions that it might be the offshoot of the mess tree. And Pabilga is sometimes abbreviated to Bilga, 
so bilga mesh might mean the old man is young again, which would be extremely relevant to the plant of immortality that Gilgamesh almost gets to eat in the Akkadian epic. But bilga is also a homophone with the Sumerian word for fruit or offshoot. So it might refer to a young offspring, which is the opposite of a male ancestor. These words are probably related, but they mean different things. So the combination of the sign ne and the syllables shashig are usually read bil today. Gonzalo Rubio says Sumerians used it more often to write the sound gibil or just gil. This may indicate that at some point in the past of the Sumerian language, there was a consonant cluster pronounced gbil or kapil. It also might have originally been ngil with a ng sound. It's worth pointing out that the G sound in standard Sumerian corresponds to the B sound in emesal, or the quote-unquote women's dialect, which may have originated as the regional dialect of the southeastern alluvium near Lagash. The sign ne that I mentioned earlier is pronounced b in a small handful of words, mostly loan words or onomatopoeias. So b lam is Sumerian for elephant, b zaza is frog, worth pointing out that b zaza follows the banana pattern of phonetics, and gubi means both eel and a type of bird. So according to Rubio, quote, one must therefore conclude that the name of the famous ruler of Unug was Gilgamesh, and only Gilgamesh, throughout all periods of Mesopotamian history, both in Akkadian and Sumerian, end quote. So in other words, Gonzalo Rubio's argument is that the name was always pronounced Gilgamesh, and that readings like Bilgames or Pabilgames are modern mistakes. So if there was a historical king Gilgamesh, like I said, he would have ruled sometime around the 2700s BCE. I've already read the Enmerkar and Lugal Bandamets, but the long narrative poems that we're familiar with in Sumerian were written down 700 years later or so. But these figures do appear in much earlier narratives. For example, in a text from Shuvarpak around 2600 BCE, like I said, Gilgamesh appears in a list of gods along with his dad Lugalbanda. In one myth, Lugalbanda falls in love with the goddess Ninsumun, Gilgamesh's mother in the epic. So I've been talking about this 21st century dynasty of kings for whom these narrative texts were written. Some of the epithets for these living kings of the third dynasty of Ur include good seed of divine Lugalbanda, pure calf born to Ninsumun, brother and friend of Gilgamesh. In a 2012 article, Christopher Woods writes, quote, In claiming Gilgamesh as their brother friend, both Urnama and Shulgi adopt Lugalbanda and Ninsumun as divine parents, end quote. So we'll cover the 21st century BCE much later. But the point here is that Gilgamesh was already a legendary hero in the early dynastic, and he was worshipped as a god only a few generations after his life. And like the Greek figures of Minos and Radamanthus and Achilles' grandpa, Iacchus, when Gilgamesh dies, he becomes a judge in the underworld. So in the Sumerian text, the death of Gilgamesh, one of the gods, I think it's Enlil from context, but it's not clear which god is talking, says that Gilgamesh will be, quote, the governor of the netherworld. Let him be preeminent among the ghosts so that he will pass judgments and render verdicts, end quote. So Utu, the sun god, was also associated with the underworld and also associated with judgment and justice. This may underscore the relationship between Gilgamesh and Utu, which I mentioned earlier. Anyway, let us return to the story of Gilgamesh and Huwawa. So previously, Gilgamesh has been troubled by human mortality. He is two-thirds immortal, but still not immune to death. So he sets out to conquer death. Yeah, because he cannot save himself from death, he may as well deal it out to other people. Great. <laughs> right. So he sets out to the Cedar Mountains on the kind of periphery of his known world. These mountains are the home of the legendary Huwawa, the mythical king of the forest brought up by the sun god Utu. But it turns out Huwawa has magical powers, which is how he was able to make Gilgamesh fall asleep on his way to the mountain. So... Enkidu berates Gilgamesh. You who have gone to sleep. You who have gone to sleep. Young Lord Gilgamesh, how long will you sleep for? The mountains are becoming indistinct as the shadows fall across them. The evening is upon us. Gilgamesh awoke from his dream, shuddering from his sleep. He rubbed his eyes. There was eerie silence everywhere. 
by the life of my mother, Ninsungun, and of my father, Holy Lugalbanda, and by my personal god, Enki, Lord Nidumud. He vexes me, the warrior whose face is a lion's grimace, and whose breast is like a raging flood. No one dare approach his brow, which devours the reed beds. On his tongue, like that of a man-eating lion, the blood never dries. You do not have enough strength for the warrior, such is his might. So Gilgamesh sets out to find Huwawa and offer him gifts. So this kind of gift exchange of high-value goods between elites has been a central feature of you know, interactions between social groups since forever. Gilgamesh didn't know Huwawa's shoe size, so he planned ahead. This next part is so funny. Right. Like, I, had, I had to practice reading this one out loud because I couldn't stop laughing when I tried to do it the first time. <laughs> Warrior, one would like to know where in the mountains you live. Here, they have made some tiny shoes for your tiny feet. Here, they have made some big shoes for your big feet. So the text here is damaged. Gilgamesh convinces Huwapa to hand over his auras, or his magical attacks, apparently by swearing an oath, which may have also been formalized with fine gifts. But then, when Huwapa had finally handed over to him his seventh aura, Gilgamesh found himself beside Huwapa. He punched him on the ear with his fist. Huwawa furrowed his brows at him, baring his teeth at him. Gilgamesh threw a halter over him, as over a captured wild bull. He tied him up by the elbows like a captured warrior. The warrior began to weep, shedding tears. Huwawa began to weep, shedding tears. Warrior, you lied! You have manhandled me! Yet you had sworn an oath, by the life of your own mother Ninsumun, and your father Holy Lugalbanda, and your personal god Enki, Lord Nidumud. And now you have thrown a halter over me, as if over a captured wild bull, and have tied me up by the elbows like a captured warrior. Gilgamesh's noble heart took pity on him. He addressed his slave, Enkidu. Come on, let us set the warrior free. He could be our guide. He could be our guide who would spy out the pitfalls of the route for us. He could carry all my things. That part is so petulant. Like, I don't want to... Right. I mean, I don't want to carry this stuff. Come on. I love the idea of, you know, this king, you know, confronting his own mortality. He's, you know, part divine or whatever. And he goes, he's on the verge of killing this mythological guardian of the edges of the world on the mountains. (laughs) And he's like, well, I could kill him or I could make him my golf caddy. Hey. No. (laughs) It is an interesting message on like political subjection. Yeah. Well, I have the military might to subdue him. So maybe he's my servant now. Oh, yeah. His slave Enkidu replied to him. Fool, so lacking in understanding, a captured warrior set free, a captured high priestess returned to the Gipar, a captured Gudug priest restored to his wig of hair. Who has ever, ever seen such a thing? He would be able to attack the mountain roots. He would be able to mix up the mountain paths. Then we would never get back to the mother city that bore us. Huwawa replied to him. The mother who bore me was a cave in the mountains. The father who engendered me was a cave in the hills. Utu left me to live all alone in the mountains. This is ironic because the father who engendered Gilgamesh was literally left in the cave in the mountains. And Utu was one of the gods who gave him, Lugubanda, Gilgamesh's father, the strength to leave. It's also worth pointing out that Gilgamesh's mom, Ninsumun, was also from the Eastern Mountains, where Lugubanda went. I haven't read it on the podcast yet, but there's a story from like 2600 BCE about the courtship of Lugubanda and Ninsumun. Mm -hmm. So the rest of the text is damaged, and the only one line remaining from this version of it is, Gilgamesh addressed Huwawa. Come on. I don't know how to read that. Like, come on. I could say, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Come on. Come on. <laughs> so it's not a secret how the story ends, but I won't tell you about it for another couple episodes because we'll read a different version in the near future. Next time, we will see Gilgamesh face a different mythical end. <laughs>